I don't know if you guys remember last Easter, but last Easter we stood out in the parking lot and nearly froze to death. Well, some of us did. Y'all were sitting in your cars nice and toasty, and my fingers have just now thawed out. So anyway, let's jump into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've been talking about this, we've been in this series equipped, and now we're, we've transitioned. We've begun to transition into the fact that, okay, God has equipped us, what do we do with it? The way that God and Jesus is taught today is that He has equipped you with everything to have your best life right now. Let me tell you something, if this is the best, that's sad, Right? I mean, even if it's good, which it is for most of us, there ain't any of us that are really have that rough of a life. I know it's frustrating when the internet doesn't work, or when it's super hot and air conditioner doesn't keep up. I get that. It's tough. I used to laugh, as many of you guys know, I used to own a landscape business years ago, and in those 100 degree days, we'd have our crews out there, and they're mowing, and they're doing all that kind of stuff, and I'm in the office, and they'd come in at the end of the day soaked in sweat. You know, and I always kept cold Gatorade stuff for them. They'd take whatever they want. And they were coming in one day, and I was like, boy, it's a hot one. And they're, you know, I mean, they're pit stains, and it's disgusting. They smell awful, right? And they're like, oh, my gosh, you have no idea. I'm like, oh, I do know. It, the air conditioner struggled to keep up all day in this office. It's been awful. And they just all left. So that was, that was the end of that. None of us have it rough, but this isn't as good as it gets. As good as it gets is what we're going to. But for right now, what has God given us? Not to have more stuff or to be able to go to different places. What has He equipped us with to be His ambassadors, His representatives? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We started using this first couple of weeks ago, but is it more true today than it was two weeks ago? It's not more true, but we focus on it today. Be reconciled to God. We're obviously talking about the resurrection. We're talking about what Jesus did. What did he do when he came on this earth? Matthew 4, 23 says he went to about all Galilee. He taught in their synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. His fame went throughout all Syria. They brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, all those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. What did he do? He taught, he preached, he healed. Everywhere he went, he taught, he preached, he healed. Matthew 9, 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. What did he do? He taught, he preached, he healed. What should we be doing? We should be teaching, we should be preaching, we should be healing. Why? Because he's equipped us with everything that we need. It's the idea of the armor of God. Here's the armor, just put it on. It's your job. It's like if you've ever coached youth sports, okay? Does a batter really want to wear a helmet? No. Because you can't see the ball. You can't turn your head as well. It's heavy. You ever seen the, like when they put the uh, t-ball players and they put that big old helmet on them and they look like a, like a weeble wobble or a bobble doll, bobblehead doll? You know what I'm saying? They don't like that thing. Why do they wear it? So they won't forget their name if they take a shot to the head. It's there. But you give a lot of these guys the options, they wouldn't wear it. You see, we, God has equipped us with everything we need, but most of it, we kind of leave off in the closet, and we only bring it out if it's absolutely necessary. 
We get really focused on prayer when things get rough. We get focused more on healing when we need healed. But what if we just stayed in this state where we are thoroughly prepared for everything and we pull out of our arsenal that God has prepared for us what we need when we need it? It's kind of like having an arrow in your quiver. Just grab what you need when you need it. You see, what Jesus did was a model for what we should be doing. Even up into what? The point of death. Do you realize for most of this, the world and the time that has come before us that to stand your ground as a born-again believer meant you laid down your life? It's really what it meant. We have never experienced that type of persecution in this country. Never. Parts of the world experience it daily. But we never have. The day will likely come. That's not a thus day of the Lord. That's just how history works. The day will likely come when you stand up for your faith. will not just cost you financially, cost you a job, cost you notoriety, whatever. It will cost you your life. But we're His ambassadors. We represent Him. That means we do what He did. We say what He said. So what else did He do? He willingly laid His life down for all mankind. Now let's look at this. We're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 15, and I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Okay? Because this is tying into what we've been talking about. 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul writing. Moreover, brethren, I declare the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, I'm going to pause for a second. What did he say that he is preaching? The gospel, right? Ask most people, what is the gospel? Number one response, first four books of the New Testament. Number two response, it's the good news. If you drill down on that a little bit, you have to ask, okay, what is the news and why is it good? Most people don't know. I mean, they kind of know, but they can't give an intellectual answer to this question. But Paul is telling us exactly what it is. And whatever this gospel is, is by which we are saved. That's important information to have. That means nothing aside from this is by which we are saved. So here we go, verse 3. I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now stop. What is the Gospel? Christ died, He was buried, He was resurrected. According to what? Not the New Testament. Right? The Scriptures in reference here is the Old Testament. What Paul is saying is that everything that Christ did according to his death, burial, and resurrection was all foretold long before it happened. Did you know that it was prophesied 500 years that Jesus would die via crucifixion 500 years before crucifixion was invented? That's kind of impressive, don't you think? I'm impressed by it. Maybe you're not. Okay? So, we're talking about something transformational here. Something that we have begun to take for granted, and that is the simplicity of the gospel message itself. And the reason we have done this is because we don't realize what it is, because we have so many traditions wrapped around it. Now let's go on here for a minute. 
So let's read this again. I delivered to you, first of all, which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now stop. What did Paul just say? There were witnesses. In other words, this isn't some story we're making up. There are witnesses that saw this. They watched him die. They watched him be buried. And guess what? They saw him again. And it wasn't just one or two. You know why one or two would be hard to believe? Because one or two can make it up. One or two can get together and conspire a story. But over 500 people at once, pretty tough to pull off. In fact, if they were making it up, one of them would crack. In order for conspiracy to hold value and hold truth, it has to be kept to a minute amount of people or somebody will crack. It's a matter of time. He is telling the Corinthian church, it's like, listen, all of these people saw him, 500 people at one time. If you don't believe me, most of them are still alive. You can go ask them. It wouldn't take much. Jerusalem is not that far from here. In fact, if they were Jewish, how often did they go back to Jerusalem? At least three times a year. They're supposed to. Ask any of them at any point in time. Let's go on. Verse 9. I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, and so we preach and so you believe. Now, here we go. This is the, the catalyst. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what does that imply? Some people didn't believe in the resurrection. So if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, in other words, declared that he has been, and we've got eyewitnesses to this, how can you say there is no resurrection? Let's put that in terminology that we use. If you say that God doesn't heal today, but we have verifiable miracles that have no explanation outside of the supernatural, how can you say that God doesn't heal today? Make sense? We use it in the same way. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. True statement? Of course it is. If dead people don't come back to life, then Christ can't be uh, re- resurrected. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. True statement? Absolutely. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, who He did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. True statement? Let's put that in today's term. Okay? We say that God heals today. But if God doesn't heal, then us preaching about it is all for naught. Fair enough? And then we are putting a false witness about God if, in fact, God does not heal when we say that He does. Same concept. You could do this with anything. How do we know that God heals today? Scripture. How do we know that Jesus was buried, uh, died, buried, and resurrected? Scripture. Were you there? Me neither. What do we have? The eyewitness testimony. The guys wrote down what they saw. So here we go. If the dead, verse 16... If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
Now, there's a bold statement. In other words, if this didn't happen, we're wasting our time. The cornerstone of Christianity is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, foretold by the prophets of old. Then also those, verse 18, have fallen asleep and Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men that most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all should be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruit, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, when the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You see, what we've got to understand is the cornerstone of our faith is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We find our knowledge of this based in what is documented in Scripture. From the Old Testament to the New. The Old Testament foretold it. The New Testament wrote down what happened. They just happened to line up. And so when we begin to look at this, we're like, okay, well, what did Jesus do? Well, he taught, he preached, he healed, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected. Now, here's the thing. That is true for every one of us. Why is that? We should be teaching. You don't have to be called to be a teacher to teach. We should be preaching. You don't have to be called to be a preacher to preach. We should be healing. Do you realize you don't have to be called to be a healer to heal? They just said believers lay hands on the sick. But we are all going to die. I guarantee it. That's a prophecy, okay? Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt die at some point. Okay? And then you're going to be buried. Whether we put you in an urn or we put you in a box, you're going in the ground. Unless you die by sea and let's not get into the weeds. All right? But the thing is, is you're all going to resurrect as the first fruits among Jesus. So we should be following the same cycle that he did. But the reason we don't think of it this way is because we're really hung up in our traditional beliefs. The reason we don't believe in healing in some, uh, some point or some form of it is because of some tradition that we either got from a church that we went to or from a bad experience or something. But traditions are with us all the time. And they're really hard to break. I mean, my wife was just planning this, and, and so she's like, we've got to go. We had to run to the store yesterday, get all the stuff to have dinner tonight. You know what she said? It's not Easter without the dinner. Now, me being the constant overthinking and overanalytical person that I am, I was like, well, technically, whether you make a meal or not is irrelevant to Easter being here. And that's where she just said, well, you shut up. And that was fair. You see, we have to begin to look at this and say, okay, what actually transpired during the time frame of Jesus' life, and how does that apply to us? As I showed you guys around Christmas time, we have traditions that we don't know why we have them. We just believe them. We three kings, 
Mary coming into town, getting ready to pop, got to find a hotel. There's nothing available. I showed you guys all why that's wrong. Jesus being born in a barn, that's not accurate. I mean, we just have all these beliefs and we never ask the question, do you realize that the story of the resurrection is the exact same thing? You may not know it, but you're about to find out. Because I'm going to show you something today and I'm going to show you why it matters. So, how many days was Jesus dead before he resurrected? Three, very good, very good. Three days. Now, I'm going to draw a line here, and I'm going to write, and I'm going to draw, and I want no comments. I want no comments. Security. Get it out of your system. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Okay, well, here we go. Let's talk about it, Mason. Thanks for showing up today. We're going to make that airplane ride worth it for you today, okay? So, uh, my marker is dying. Let's try another one. It probably is. Here, you can have it then. I'll say we didn't give you nothing. All right, we have the beginning, we have the end. Three days. I'm going to segment this into three different days. Now, how do the Jews contemplate time. Sunset to sunset, right? Evening and morning. So that means that when they look at this and they begin to split up their day, it starts at night. I can't write. Night, day. Day one. Night, day. Day two. Night, Day. Day three. Fair enough? We do it from day to day, right? We go midnight to midnight if you want to get technical. Because, you know, it starts the new day as soon as it rolls over midnight. Most of you aren't awake to watch it happen, except one day a year. And you all are crazy for doing that. But we have all of these things that are happening. We have to ask ourselves the question, is that when Jesus died, what order of events transpired? Because again, we hold to these traditions, but we don't ask any questions. So what do we know that Jesus did in the three days leading up to the point of his death? And then when was he resurrected? Now, right now, if I were to ask you this question, we've got Friday, we've got Saturday, and we've got Sunday. Okay? That's Sunday, not Sue for you Nebraska fans, okay? Which is most of us, right? Because we're God-fearing people. Anyway, (laughs) Friday, Saturday, Sunday is what we say. What do we have? We celebrate Good Friday. We've written songs about it. Carmen made a fortune off the champion because Sunday's on the way, right? We get all excited about that, but we never stop to ask the question, were those the three days? And we never stop to ask the question, why do we think they were the three days? And we never stop to ask the question, what does Scripture actually say? Now, when I get done with this, you're either going to hate me, you're going to like me, or you're going to ask, why are you wasting my time with this? Okay? Because I can't. That's why. So the first thing we know is that Jesus, leading into this, was leading into what? Passover. What is Passover? Passover took place on Nisan 14. Nisan 14 was ordained by God. There were seven festivals that they were ordained to celebrate. They were supposed to go back to Jerusalem 
three times a year, one of which is technically the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes when you, they, they overlap Passover to Unleavened Bread, Unleavened Bread was a week, it was the 15th of Nisan when it technically started. I don't want to get off into the weeds on this stuff, just bear with me. I've taught about some of this, I can teach about it again sometime, but that's not today. So, we know that he came over and he celebrates the Passover. Luke 22, verse 7 says this, Then the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, and he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Again, the day of unleavened bread is coming. They're getting ready to, to celebrate Passover. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and go into the house, which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it as just uh, as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat it. Of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among yourself, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, as far as what takes place in this, you guys will see that next Sunday night in detail. That's why I'm not spending any time on this at all. But what do we know that Jesus did? Well, the first thing he did is he celebrated the Passover. This is in the evening. They're celebrating the Passover. They get through the meal. They go through the whole process with the bread, the wine, the lamb, the whole thing. Again, you will see this in detail next week. But what takes place after this? Jesus goes into Gethsemane and he prays. Look in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Then he came to a place while he was at Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what, uh, what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So what did he do after that? So they finished the supper. He goes to Gethsemane, and what does he do? He prays three times. Disciples were having a bad day. Because all they had to do was sit there and watch and wait. They couldn't stay awake. But he prayed three times. And what was he praying? Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. What cup is he referring to? The cup of redemption. He's getting ready to pour out his blood for mankind. Let's just be honest, we'd all be a little stressed out if that was about to come. He knew what was coming. He had seen people be crucified before. I'm pretty confident. It wasn't like this was a new thing. This is a pretty common practice at this point by the Romans. So he is prepared, and what did he tell them? Listen, the time's now come. My betrayer is at hand. That's the next part. Jesus gets betrayed in Mark 14, verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas... One of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Now he, uh, his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then he laid, at, uh, laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. And then they all forsook him and fled. Now, this is interesting to me. What's the next part that happens? Jesus is betrayed, right? He's arrested. This is all in that same evening, all in that same time frame. But what's interesting here is who was the one that cut off the ear? It was Peter. Why is the name not given here? You ever ask that question? It's interesting to me. Now, let me tell you something. You may not know this, but Mark wasn't necessarily there. Mark was the scribe of Peter. He is writing down what Peter has said. Peter did a bad thing here. He conveniently, the one who was with him, where everybody else says, yeah, it was Peter. Isn't that interesting? It's one of the, again, you're looking at how do people work? How do, how do people act? Well, if you're writing the story and you're making up the details, don't you make yourself the hero? You see, one of the reasons that we know that the story of the resurrection is true, and we'll get a little more into this later, is the fact that who was the first one to see Jesus resurrected? The women. Did the men believe? No. At that time point, a woman's testimony was completely worthless. The fact that they put that into the Gospels means they're writing down what took place. If they were making it up, Peter would have been like, I was the first one there, but I believed the whole time. That's not what happened. So Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, and he doubles down on this like, I was with you daily in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. What scriptures? The prophecies have to be fulfilled. There's a reason all of this stuff transpired the way that it did. And so we look at this, we're like, okay, that's great. Why did Judas kiss him? Did they not know who Jesus was? It was the marker of an accuser making an accusation. There was no denying who was there. He specifically said, this is the one. In other words, there's no ambiguity about who was he there to take. So what happens after this? He gets arrested. What do they do next? We know how the story goes. Who did they take him to? They took him to Pilate, right? Mark 15. We're just kind of going down, down the line here. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. So the Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained in his fellow rebels. They had, he had committed murder in their rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, Crucify him. Now this is interesting. Now, what did we notice the first thing? The first thing it says, Immediately in the morning. So now we've transitioned. Over here. Jesus is delivered to Pilate. We're now in what we would call the next day, Friday morning, if you will, okay? He's delivered to Pilate. Now, as Pilate is, is breaking down, what did he say? This man has done nothing wrong, but he knew the jealousy of the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, and all of that. Why were they after Jesus? Remember what I've showed you is that they were the, the Pharisees were the ones who had to declare him Messiah. All the evidence was there. It wasn't that they were blinded to it. They chose not to see it because of the jealousy. So Pilate is like, what has he done? You want me to crucify him? What has he done? And they just cried out again, crucify him. The chief priests were stirring the crowd up. We see that take place later on with the apostles, don't we? We see this type of thing take place all the time. And we know what Pilate does. He washes his hand. He's like, did nothing wrong. Now, in this moment, what has just happened? The Passover lamb has been inspected. There's no spot or blemish on him. Right? Just tying these two things together. What happens immediately after this? It's the beginning of the crucifixion. He gets beat, he gets hung up. Mark 15, verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for, to determine that every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, which means they have now hung him on the cross. So, what time is the third hour? 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Because daybreak. 6 a.m., roughly, okay? So, as we go through this, we begin to see the story unfold. We know all of this stuff. No new information is given here. What happens next? Well, he hangs there for a while. But then darkness comes over the land. In Mark 15, verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So, you've got darkness from when? That's right for you math whizzes, 12 to 3. 12 to 3 is completely dark. This is something that's been marked in history. You can find writings about this weird day that took place where there was no sun. They have no explanation of it. There are things that are out there. This goes on. What happens next? Jesus dies. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So Jesus dies at three. They would not have called it 3 p.m., FYI. 
Now, there's a lot that just happened here. He's up there. He's crying out to God. Remember they said, why don't you call angels and have them? Could he have done that? He sure could have. Absolutely. He chose not to, right? Should the Pharisees have believed? Absolutely. Was all the evidence there for them to believe? Absolutely. They chose not to, right? So should you feel sorry for them? Nope. Should we feel sorry for anybody who rejects the gospel message? No. Because they choose not to believe. We should be moved with compassion for them. But they've made their choice. We should always share the gospel with them every chance we have. But they've made their choice. God will never force somebody into his heaven against their will. So, here we've got the same thing. And what happens? The centurion, a Roman, said, truly, this was the Son of God. He recognized it then. The veil being torn is a huge deal. We've talked about this before. But understand the thickness of it. It's a single curtain with no opening. It's the thickness of a man's hand. So, depending on the man, it could be a good-sized hand. We'll go with that because it's more fun. But it gets torn down the middle. Why? What is the significance of that? What was held in there was the presence of God. One man alone could go in there one time a year, being the high priest. But truth be told, the presence of God had not been in there for a very long time. Because you'll see it in Ezekiel where the presence of God leaves, goes to the Mount of Olives, and raises up. Where do we have the presence of God at this moment? Was standing there on earth. And where do we have the presence of God at this moment? inside of us. You see, no longer did you have to meet a qualification to enter into the presence of God. The presence of God now is all around us. There is no separation anymore. So now he is dead, but they got to double down to make sure. And this is important, and this is where it begins to get interesting. In John chapter 19, you'll see this in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, now remember that, preparation day. We'll come back to that. Because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But, the legs of the first, uh, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So the last thing that they did is they pierced his side. Why does this matter? Again, this is a, an example of something telling us that they're just writing it down. As I've told you before, but I'll say it again in case you weren't here is that for years, theologians have tried to figure out the meaning behind this. And they would associate the blood with salvation and the water with baptism. But what we learn in the early 1900s is something called pleural effusion and pericardial effusion, is that when a body has gone through an enormous suffering, there's a water uh, membrane that gets around the heart and around the lungs that separates the water from the blood. For the first time, they realized this in the 1900s, and so when they pierced his side after the beating he went through, they came out separated. How do we know that they're simply writing down what, what, what took place? It's the fact that we didn't even know what this thing was until a little over 100 years ago. It's just more evidence that this is exactly what took place. So, they broke the legs, they pierced his side. He, verse 35, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, for he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Who is he talking about here? John. He's talking about himself. I saw this. My testimony is true, 
so that what? You may believe. In other words, my testimony here is so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So we got another fulfillment of prophecy taking place. No bones broken. One more thing had to happen. What happens after this? I probably should have made my lines a little bigger. Is they put him in the tomb. Mark 15, verse 42. Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked if he had been dead for some time. And when he had found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb, which he had been been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So the last thing they did, just uh, just a hair, is they put him laid him in the tomb. Why did they hurry to do this? Because it's the day before the Sabbath, which is what day? Friday. Friday night to Saturday night, right? It's just because it works different. You're technically right, it is Saturday. That's how they would look at it. But so that we can understand it, it was Friday night to Saturday night. That is the day before the Sabbath. So they have got to hurry and get this done because what can't they do on the Sabbath? Pretty much anything. Right? It's very, very limited. So, this is the first part of the story. Now, we begin to fast forward a little bit. Let's look at Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Well, when did that happen? Well, we know the Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath started here, so somewhere over here at dawn, or at dusk, I should say, when the next day would technically start, I'm going to put it right in this vicinity, but they bought the spices because it was after the Sabbath. Because they had to go from Friday night to Saturday evening doing nothing. Now, the Sabbath was over. So... Luke 23, verse 56. Then they returned and prepared the spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Did anybody just get confused? You should have. Okay. When the Sabbath was passed, they bought spices to anoint him. That was before. Look at Luke 23, verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. We have a problem. This is where we get confused. So we don't know what to do with this, but I'm going to stick it here for now. Okay? So they bought the spices, but they prepared the spices. And then what? Rested. Why did they rest? For the Sabbath. We seem to have an issue here. Something is contradicting something else. Fair enough. Is that... We'll come back to this, but just bear with me. Luke 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, 
They and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Okay, so we saw them prepare the spices. First day of the week, very early in the morning. When was that? It would be Sunday, super early. Sun's just starting to come out. They came. Okay? I know this is, you can't read any of that. You couldn't read it if you were standing close to it. So, what happens when they get there? Did they watch Jesus resurrect? No, they didn't. Luke 24, verse 2. But they found that the stone rolled away from the tomb, and then they went in and did not find the body of their Lord Jesus. So he was already resurrected, but they thought they were going to find him. What were they showing up for? Were they expecting to see him alive? No, they were coming to embalm him. Okay? So Jesus, we know at this point, is already resurrected. When was he resurrected? Doesn't tell us. All we know is that he was. Fair enough. So we've got a problem. We get this, okay, fine, night and day. Night and day. And this can go somewhere into this, this range here, okay? And, you know, just bear with me on the, on the factual part here. But we know that they rested after they bought the spices, but we know they bought the spices before the Sabbath. So this doesn't make a lot of sense. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to deal with this. We also have to deal with what Jesus said. See, what Jesus said is really what matters. Because we can break this down, but we have to understand something. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want a sign, or we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that? Well, we don't know. Let's read on. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How many days? How many nights? Doesn't this sound similar to what we read in Numbers 21? Where in Numbers 21, you have the brazen serpent, which doesn't make any sense. You've got the people that have sinned against God. They cry out to God. Moses tells God, or God tells Moses, okay, here's what I want you to do. Build a serpent out of brass, put it on a hill. Anybody who's bitten, when they go and they look at it, they will be healed, they will live and not die. Doesn't make any sense. No explanation given whatsoever, right? Fast forward to Hezekiah, he destroys it because the Israelites are worshiping it. We still don't know what it is until we get to John chapter 3, and where Jesus tells Nicodemus, for as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be. So we have something that happened in the Old Testament being illusioned for Jesus when he comes. Now we have something that we know that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for how many days and nights? Three. So just like that, Jesus is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, let's do some math, shall we? I know you wanted to come today and you're like, yay, math, isn't that fun? We know that Jesus died here. Okay? Three days and three nights. He's buried before sundown what would be technically Saturday. So you get one full day, and we know when they got over here, he was already resurrected. When? I don't know. What I do know is no matter how you look at this, you don't get three days, and you don't get three nights. Your best bet is you can get two nights in one day. We have a problem, don't we? We have a major problem. Because if this is the cornerstone of the faith that we are in, 
How can this be so confusing? You guys with me? Anybody have intellectual constipation yet? I get it. Because, I mean, we traditionally, Jesus died. We have Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, and all of this stuff, and we never ask the question, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Why do we believe that this took place prior to Saturday? Because it talks about the Sabbath. When was the Sabbath? It's Friday night to Saturday night. We have a conflict of Sabbath. But what we know is you go Friday to Sunday, you don't get three days and three nights. Now let me give a disclaimer here. It is true that sometimes the Jews will look as a start or a portion of the day and count it as a full day. That is at least a possibility. And if that is the case, there is no doubt that you could count Friday, you could count Saturday, and you could most certainly count Sunday. Very likely he was resurrected some way just past dusk on Saturday night. Okay? But if you do that, you could get that and you could account for that. But I don't believe that that's what's happening. And I'm giving you the information. You come to your own conclusion, do your own study. Here's what I came to. You see, we have a conflict of Sabbaths, and we don't even realize it. In Mark 16, it says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, her mother, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, and they went and came to anoint, uh, the, to anoint Jesus. So what happens? It was somewhere in here. We get over into this range here after the Sabbath. They did that. But then in Luke 23, it says they returned and prepared the spices and the fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now they're resting. So we've got this conflict of Sabbath. What is the solution? The solution was given in a verse we already read in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, verse 31, it says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. That's the clue. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. What is a high day? Or It's also known as a high Sabbath. We think of Sabbaths only on the Friday night to Saturday night. But during the festivals... There were times in the preparation day going into those moments that in Leviticus you will see that the day of unleavened bread was known as a high Sabbath. So in other words, during Holy Week, there were two Sabbaths. This was a Sabbath. This was a Sabbath. So now we begin to do the math, and we also have to look at this and say, what happened? We know on what we would say, and what I'm going to tell you is this. This was not Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This was Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And when I say that, and again, it gets a little confusing, but just bear with me, is that this took place prior to the event happening. At 3 p.m. on Wednesday, they think that Jesus died, right? We know it was around 3 p.m. because it tells us that. Before sunset, he's buried. From Wednesday sunset to Thursday sunrise is night one. Thursday sunrise to Thursday sunset is day one. Thursday sunset to Friday sunrise is day two, or night two, excuse me. Day two is Friday sunrise to Friday sunset, which goes into what? The Sabbath. Friday sunset to Saturday sunrise is night three. Day three is Saturday sunrise to Saturday sunset. I believe that Jesus was resurrected Saturday night. I think all of this stuff takes place on Wednesday. Saturday night, which would be over here somewhere, that he was resurrected. 
The reason I say that is because if you look up, you can actually go back and look these things up. But Passover in the year 31 AD, uh, which was Nisan 14th, fell on Wednesday, April 25th. You see, we talk about traditions. Why does this matter? We like to be accurate. We have a conflict. The high Sabbath, and what throws us off is the word Sabbath, and what throws us off is the way they account their days. But basically, the high Sabbath was another day of which they rested, which made sense. The women went and bought the spices and rested. Then after that Sabbath passes, they prepared the spices. And And then what happens? When they showed up, he's already resurrected. That's the order of events that took place. Now, this is my opinion. I'm not the only one that holds it, but it is my opinion. Now, why do we care and why does it matter? We're looking at what Jesus did. You see, we hold to traditions, we don't ask questions. And what I'm telling you, and the reason I'm showing you this, is because we have to ask, what does Scripture actually say? Versus, what is the belief that I've always been told? That's the distinction. Because if we are going to get closer to what God has said, in other words, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be teaching, preaching, healing. We need to know that it's His will. We need to know what He's done. This is the work that Jesus has done. We are trying to get rid of any tradition that does not line up with Scripture. Traditions are great if they're scriptural. But we don't ever ask the hard questions. Why do I believe what I believe? That goes for good and bad. If you believe that God heals today solely because you've seen somebody be healed, then you have a weak belief because then that is the same allowable evidence for somebody who didn't see somebody get healed. But if you believe that God heals today because Scripture is very clear on the subject, that is a foundation that is unshakable because this is the very Word of God. You see, we as a church, the body of Christ, have to get back to being like Jesus not just from a moral standpoint, but from an ambassadorship standpoint. Jesus was the representative of the Godhead on earth. What he said and what he did is the will of God. You and I have the ministry of reconciliation that was bestowed upon us. And we have to be God's representative on this earth. And the things that we say and the things that we do have to represent what the will of God is. And if you hold to a tradition that does not line up with Scripture, then you are spreading a message contrary to the Word of God. We just want to be accurate. I am trying to encourage all of us that we have a mission here. And we play church. We go, we do, we pray, but we're not mission-focused We have got to get back to the roots. Do you realize that in this room is not where people get saved? Can they? Sure. But is there something special about this room? No. This room is not where people get healed. Can they? Absolutely. But there's nothing special about this room. We take the presence of God Everywhere we go, our words and our actions should line up with what God has said. Amen? Come on, church. Let's get going. Let's do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need.
in order to live a life devoted to you. Live a life.